Psalm 77, a psalm of Asaph, who was a contemporary of King David. Hear now the reading of God's word. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever, and will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And I said in my grief that the right hand of the Most High, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your works and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you that they were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters. And your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. take just another minute to pray. Father, we pray that you would convict us, convert, comfort, encourage, strengthen, lead us in the way that we should go by this time considering your very word. We pray in Christ our Savior. Amen. The last verse of the psalm is so moving. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And I believe Psalm 77, in a sense, reaches into our lives and leads us by the hand, as it were. Grief is not something that just goes away. I per perhaps on some level we wish that after memorial services and gravesides and receptions that along with those activities, the grief would go away as well. But that's not how grief works. Grief 
comes in waves, it comes in cycles, and we do well to think in terms of coping with grief, realizing that in some ways, grief is with us until the end of our earthly pilgrimage. Thank God there's an expiration date on grief, but that expiration date comes at the end of our earthly lives. And until then, in one way or another, at one funeral or another, we're coping with grief. And we began to see last week that there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's what Christ himself modeled for us. Jesus wept. He was the man of sorrows. He knew grief himself. He coped with grief throughout his earthly life. And it's no mistake that the book of Psalms, more than any other book in the Old Testament, is quoted in the New Testament because the New Testament is where we learn about Jesus Christ. And if you want into the mind of Jesus Christ, then you need to know the Psalms. The Psalms put human experience into language. They give us a vocabulary for the slings and arrows of the outrageous fortune of this life. They give us a vocabulary to cope with grief. They enable us to grieve to the glory of God they enable us to grieve like the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ himself. John Calvin, speaking about the book of Psalms, calls it an anatomy of all of the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not represented as in a mirror in the book of Psalms. The Holy Spirit in the book of Psalms has drawn to the life of all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are agitated. Doesn't that include grief itself? Emotions that at points are distracting emotions, even aggravating emotions, emotions that you cannot just buckle down and will away and power through, but hit you wave upon wave as you cope with grief, striving to grieve to the glory of God with these emotions which agitate our minds. Calvin says further, it is by perusing these inspired compositions that men will be most effectually awakened to a sense of their maladies and at the same time instructed in seeking remedies for their cure. As we cope with grief and grieve to the glory of God, I believe Psalm 77, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has this power to reach into your life, take you by the hand, and lead you through the cycles of grief. It's not one and done. It's not like, oh, I'm grieving now. I'll read Psalm 77 and I won't be grieving anymore. But as you continue to cycle through grief, Psalm 77 will lead you as God's very word. We'll look at the psalm under three headings. The first four verses is darkness. Verses 5 through 12, you have the breaking of dawn. 
And then in verses 13 through 20, after darkness, light. The psalm begins in darkness. It is a picture of grief. And you'll notice that, beginning with the first verse, this is the grief of a believer. This is one who believes his voice is rising to God and that God will hear him. And nevertheless, this grieving psalmist, Asaph, is at the same time struggling for belief. Believing, but struggling for that very belief. Isn't that exactly what goes on in the Christian's experience? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. There are temptations to despair all around me. There are so many things in my experience that seem to conflict with the idea that God is good and all-powerful and all-holy and gentle and merciful and kind. But I still believe. I believe that he hears me. I believe that my voice is rising to him. And there's expressions that come from the psalmist with this that so much relate to us in grief and trial and affliction. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. I can't sleep at night, at the time in which I should be receiving rest for my body. Instead, my hands are extended towards heaven. My soul refuses to be comforted. And then look at verse 3. It almost makes you uncomfortable as a believer. It makes you glad that verse 1 was already there. When I remember God, then I was disturbed. Isn't that remarkable language to find in the word of God itself? And doesn't it correspond with the trials and the afflictions and the pain that we go through? On some level, we are comforted beyond words by God who is our strength and our portion. And on another level, even simultaneously, as we know God hears us, as we know he's our hope, as we know he's our comfort in life and in death, when we think about God, we're disturbed. We're distressed. The thought of God himself causes some form of anguish. You know, that whole objection to Christianity, the problem of evil. You know what's remarkable about that? And C.S. Lewis brought this out in his book, The Problem of Pain. The thesis of that book, The Problem of Pain, is that the problem of evil isn't a problem for an atheist. If you don't believe in God, you can't blame him for the evil in the world. The problem of evil is a problem for the Christian. That's for us to grapple with. How can God be good? How can he hear my voice? How can he be all holy? How can he be merciful and gracious, full of loving kindness? all-powerful when a world is so full of evil, the world that we are a part of, even believers, children of God. So, and with verse 1, we believe in this God, we believe he hears our voice. But in verse 3, at points, part of our anguish, part of our grief, 
is that even thinking about God disturbs us. It brings us to this problem of evil that surrounds us. Verse 4, you have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Precisely what we say during times of intense grief, right? The emotions take over. The tears well up inside of us. The very ability to verbalize our thoughts ceases. We can't speak. We moan. We groan. We grieve. And before going much further with this, I just, I want you to see the, the permission that these verses give you. The permission God gives you through his own word. It, it's here again that you just don't come across literature like this anywhere else. It has this divine significance to it that it can reach into your life and relate to you on an emotional level and take you from the hand and say, you, you know, you're agitated by all of these emotions, some of which are out of your control and you know, things are, are difficult during this time. You can't sleep at night. You can't verbalize. Your, it, it's beyond words, so to speak. But this is not beyond the experience of a believer in God. This is often the experience of a believer. It was the experience of Asaph in the Old Testament. He wrote about it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was something of the experience of Jesus Christ himself who knew sorrow and grief. A permission to realize that there are times of darkness in this life in which you have dealings with God and believe in him while also battling for continued belief in him. A permission to grieve, to really grieve, to be emotional and sorrowful. There's something fascinating that happens in verses 5 through 12, whereas verses 1 through 4 is darkness. The dawn begins to break in verses 5 through 12. It's still dark, but there's a little light on the horizon. The shades of darkness begin to lift, and a little light begins piercing through. And it's significant what happens in verses 5 and 6. You know, instead of his immediate situation, he begins considering the days of old. And I think it's helpful to stop and realize every time you read your Bible, you are considering the days of old. The whole Bible was completed almost 2,000 years ago, so you're reading about events that are very uh, established in the past, very long ago in so many ways. And when we return to God's word, we're inevitably considering the days of old, the years of long ago. But what happens when we do that, in addition to considering history of old, days of old, is that our minds begin to go off of the immediate circumstances which we are in and perhaps drowning in. I will remember my song in the night, verse 6 says. I will meditate with my heart. My spirit ponders. And in verses 7 through 9, three verses, 
there's five questions. And I think it's so appropriate to just consider the nature of a question. So amazing how encouraging God is through his word to come to God with questions. And isn't that the posture of a child? I mean, isn't that what wears us out as parents? If we have two and three-year-olds who are uh, learning how to speak, it's just, what about this? What about this? And what about that? And why can't we do this? And what about this? And what about this? And why? And why? And why? Questions. The questions that come from children. And we're encouraged from the Word of God not to go to God in condemnation and asserting things about Him and saying, God, you failed me. God, you weren't there. You... You really let the ball drop on this one, Lord. There's no way you could be there in heaven and such bad things could happen here on earth. But we can go to him with questions. Even difficult questions. Again, Christ. With the words of the Psalms in his heart, in his mind, on his lips. Went to God with a question from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A question. Five questions in verses six, uh, verses seven through nine. Will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promises come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? You know, those are the sorts of questions that go through my mind every time I'm at a graveside. But look at how their questions are not statements. Look, look at how different a childlike belief that is undergoing grief, ang agony, anguish, is coping with grief. Look at how different it is for a believer who is coping with grief and grieving to the glory of God. Look at how different that is from unbelief. Not the Lord has rejected me forever. He will never again be favorable to me. His loving kindness has ceased forever. His promise has come to an end forever. He has forgotten to be gracious. In anger, he has withdrawn his compassion. Not assertions, but questions. Lord, in my experience, seeing what I'm seeing, dealing with what I'm dealing with, confronted with these agitated emotions, with this circumstance that has engulfed me. I cannot help but burn with these questions. Hear me, Lord, as I pray. Come to me in my time of weakness. Then he has a realization in verse 10, which really becomes a breakthrough. The psalmist says, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. He looks at his circumstance and he's, he's able to interpret it in a very helpful way. He's saying, 
you know, maybe it's not that God has actually changed. Maybe that's my grief shouting so loudly. Maybe somehow, even in the midst of this, God continues to be good and unchanging and gracious and merciful and kind. I just can't see that right now because my grief is so present. Because I'm hurting so bad. Because I haven't gotten sleep. Because I can't always verbalize what's on my mind. Because I'm at a loss for words. Because I'm weeping so frequently. But that's a breakthrough. Maybe it's the grief. Maybe it's not God. Maybe it's the subjective experience that I'm in at this moment. And that breakthrough leads him to sort of the way he began this section, by going back and considering the God of old, the God who has written in history his own story and recorded that redemption history in the very word of God. I will meditate, he said, uh, verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your works and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Do you see what happens there in verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12? A shift. Getting his mind off of the immediate circumstances, going back to the wonders of old, the works that God has recorded in Scripture. There's a fascinating thing that happens, and we'll see it in the next section, verses 13 through 20, after darkness light. But here, I, I want you to think about what's going on. Asaph, a contemporary of King David, overwhelmed with grief, crying out to the Lord, has these burning, grief-stricken questions, the posture of a believer before God. And he's saying, you know what? I am intentionally going to put my mind on something other than what is immediately present. I didn't just pop up here today. I'm a contemporary of King David. I'm a citizen of Zion. I'm an inhabitant of the promised land. I'm going to think about what the Lord did to bring us to this point. I'm going to consider the wonders that he worked of old. And that's what the rest of the psalm is about, verses 13 through 20, which is after darkness, light through the psalm, led to not only breaking dawn, but actual light. Look what he says in verse 15. As he considers the wonders of old, he says, You have, by your power, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Why Jacob and Joseph? Why those two patriarchs, Jacob and Joseph? 
You know, we're used to hearing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't often come across the pairing of Jacob and Joseph. I think it's because Jacob and Joseph died in Egypt. Egypt, the house of bondage that became the house of death and slavery for Israel. And Asaph, in his grief, is saying, my present circumstance is so much. I need to think about the deeds of God of old. I need to take account of who I am and what has brought me here. I'm an inhabitant of Zion. I'm a contemporary of King David. I am an inhabitant of the promised land. That wasn't true of my ancestors, Jacob and Joseph. They died in Egypt. And since then, the Lord has redeemed his people. By his power, he redeemed his people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, bringing them out of the house of bondage, bringing them out from death, out from slavery, out from oppression, and ushering them into the land of promise, the promised land. And Asaph is taking account of that and saying, I do have reason for hope, despite my present circumstances. I'll reflect on what God has done with his redeeming hand, bringing out my forefathers from the land of Egypt, the house of bondage and oppression. So then he goes into recount all the ways in which the Lord brought the people out from Egypt. The water saw you, O God, the water saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth the sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Don't you love that recounting? It's special effects, except they actually happened. It's not made in Hollywood in a studio. It's things that God actually brought to pass, shaking the world, lighting it up with thunder and lightning, or making it shake with thunder, making it light up with lightnings. Your way was in the sea, and your path in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. Think of how the Lord brought his children out of oppression, out of slavery, out of the house of bondage, by leading them through clouds that poured out water, skies that gave forth sound, whirlwinds, and a trembling earth, tumult on every side, not to mention their enemies, the Egyptians, behind them. That's how the Lord redeemed the sons of Jacob and Joseph. That's what he did. That's what he accomplished. The impossible. What no man could do, God did. And Asaph is saying, that's why I'm here. That's, that's why I'm not a slave in Egypt. That's why I'm an inhabitant of the promised land, a contemporary of King David. And he says, your footprints may not be known. And it's a, a clue into that time back walking through the parting of the sea. All the effects of God surrounded them, all of his power, but he himself wasn't there. You couldn't see his footprints in the sea. And yet he was delivering his people, redeeming Israel. And it brings us to 
that lovely verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I think that's awesome. I mean, it's so, it's so like it melts your heart to, to read that verse. The Lord is there and his power is all around them and he's redeeming them from the house of bondage, bringing them out of darkness into light, leading them by the hand of Moses and Aaron. But you know, if you go back to the book of Exodus and you read this account, the children of Israel are not saying that. <laughs> They're not saying like, yes, the Egyptians are behind us, the enemies are hot on our trail, and you know, there's this tempest and storm in front of us, a, a sea to cross. The Lord's leading us by the hand of Moses and Aaron. No, you remember what they said. They cried out to Moses, Moses, what, there weren't enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die? They were asking questions, you know, like perplexed. And yet Asaph is able to look back and recognize that through all that, the Lord was in fact there with them, even though his footprints weren't known. In fact, he was so with them, he was leading them by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And what a tremendous comfort that is to us. We go through these times of tumult in life, and it's hard to even get our minds off of, for a moment, the immediate circumstances that we're engulfed in. But we have God's word that reaches into our lives and encourages us to consider these days of old, what the Lord has accomplished in times past, what is captured for us in history and in God's word. And to settle our minds on those things and look at what has happened. This is why I say it's after darkness light. The beginning of the psalm, my voice rises to God. He will hear me in the day of my trouble. In the night my hand was stretched out. My soul refused to be comforted. I remember God. I sigh. My spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. I, am so, I cannot speak because I'm so troubled. I, 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 I. Look what's gone on in verses 12 through 20. Your way, O God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength. You, by your power, have redeemed your people. The water saw you, O God. The water saw you. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth the sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the mighty waters. Your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. No more I. And it's not because thinking about yourself is wrong. It's in God's word. It's how the psalm starts. But God, by his Holy Spirit, through his word, draws you to consider what he has accomplished in times past and works through his Holy Spirit, even in grieving hearts, so that you can fix your attention on God and find rest and hope, even amidst the worst griefs and trials. And I think it's helpful to realize that 
you know, the, the salvation of Israel from Egypt, the house of bondage, that was the great redemptive act of the Old Testament. But it was the Old Testament. What we have now is so much better. When we talk about the house of bondage, when we think about oppression, we think about death. We think about sin. And we have the privilege of considering the days of old, the wonders and the deeds of God. And in those days of old, seeing our God come and conquer sin and death. Living that life of perfect righteousness, going to the cross itself, dying, obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But then because he was obedient, even to the point of the death of the cross, death couldn't hold him. The wages of sin is death, but he didn't earn those wages because he never sinned. Not only overcame sin, but overcame death itself. When we look back and consider the works of God of old, the wonders that he has accomplished, the deeds of the past, we go back to the cross and rejoice to know that it's empty and that the tomb is empty as well. And we say, if he has done that, if he's the reason we have forgiveness of sins, if he's the reason we are guiltless before God and will be on the day of the Lord, if he not only raised the dead, but was himself the dead who was raised, then we have hope for whatever circumstances we're enduring, whatever grief we're coping with. We can rest in this God who accomplishes the impossible. I just want to close with reading you some promises of God from the New Testament as you continue to focus on that empty cross and that empty tomb and all that God has accomplished in times past. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his pur purpose. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us 
all things. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, send us your spirit to put our attention on you, our Lord, to consider your deeds of old, what is written in your word and in history, and to see all the ways in which it has everything to do with our present circumstance. Draw us to yourself. Make us those who are able to say from the heart, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. We pray in your great, mighty name. Amen. Amen.